Welcome to episode number 169 of the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and welcome to another episode. I am online editor for the Northern Miner. I also help take care of social media, and I also help host this podcast. And another interesting show, we are going deep into the land of nickel, and we are going to talk to Paulo Castellari, who is CEO of Atlantic Nickel and Appian Capital Brazil. Our acting editor-in-chief, Trish Saywell, has a interview with him, and they have just sold their first nickel concentrate from their Santa Rita project in Brazil. Santa Rita is one of the largest open-pit nickel sulfide mines in the world. It was placed on care and maintenance in 2015. Mirabella Nickel operated the mine for six years before it shut down due to low nickel prices and high costs. So we're going to discuss more on this later, but you're going to get a real boots-on-the-ground perspective of what it's like to ramp up a nickel mine. So stay tuned for that. And also, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame took place last week, and it looks like it was a very successful night. Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro was the MC or Master of Ceremonies, and he was looking very sharp, and the early reviews are quite good. So we're going to have some audio on the podcast in the next week or two, so stay tuned for that. Check out the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame on Twitter if you want to see a ton of photos of the event. If you're looking for their Twitter handle, it's at CDNMHF or what you might think of is at Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. So it's at CDNMHF. And what I love about what they're doing, something we do, is they've been retweeting everyone who took pictures of the event. And so you get a real nice variety of pictures from different perspectives. A lot of people having fun. And so check out at CDNMHF. Like I was saying, we do that here too. So if you're sharing stories from the Northern Miner, be sure to tag us as you'll very likely get a retweet. So just throw that out there. I like to mention that every few weeks. You can find us online at northernminer.com, on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And as well, this podcast is available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Apple Podcasts. And what a year for news so far. Here we go. Turning to the website, we have a really interesting headline. Ecuador court allows public referendums on mining projects. This is from Cecilia Chamazmi, and she's out of mining.com, our sister publication. And she is saying that a local Ecuadorian newspaper called El Comercio is reporting that Ecuador's constitutional court has ruled that communities have the right to hold public referendums on whether or not to allow a mining project to go forward. The fresh verdict, El Comercio reported, concluded that there was no clear and express prohibition in the country's constitution against undertaking popular votes about mining. It also noted that citizens are guaranteed participation in deciding socioeconomic matters, particularly when they have a clear effect on the environment. So you see this environmental pressure is coming from all sides. It's coming from the ESG investment side. It's coming from the political side. Yeah, mining companies in the 21st century in 2020 completely have to have their ESG house in order, I, I think, because uh, it's just it seems like it's story after story. I don't know if it's cascading or snowballing. I don't know if I'd go that far. Constant might be an overstatement, but they're pretty regular. 
Let's put it that way. Continuing, the legal challenge communities face now is to frame a referendum's question in a legitimate way. The resolution represents a victory for the southern province of Azuay, which is once again asking to make mining permits subject to popular approval. The area hosts several projects, including INV Metals, Loma Larga Gold, Silver, and Copper Project, and Sol Gold's Sharug Project. Finally, Ecuador has gained ground as a mining investment destination in the past two years, but opposition to the extraction of the country's resources could thwart the government's plan to attract $3.7 billion in mining investments over the next two years. That's significantly higher than the $270 million it received in 2018. So here we go. Ecuador continues to make interesting headlines here. They have the Lost Cities of Gold project. They have the Fruta del Norte project. If you remember, Kinross got rid of it because they felt like they couldn't work with the government. Then Lundin Gold took it over. And they've actually been doing quite well. And actually, let's just turn to our Fruta del Norte story. We have a fast news item here. Fruta del Norte ramp up on track, says Lundin Gold. This is by Trish Saywell. Lundin Gold has reported that the ramp-up of its Fruta del Norte gold mine and plant is on schedule and within budget. The mine, Ecuador's first large-scale gold mine, produced 28,678 ounces of gold last year. Based on an update to its mine plan, life of mine all-in sustaining costs are now expected at a mere $621 per ounce, up slightly from its prior estimate of $583 per ounce. The increase is primarily driven by revised metal price assumptions, leading to increased royalties and production taxes. Just a final note on this, the company expects to declare commercial production at Fruta del Norte in the second quarter. Underground development rates are in line with the company's plan and construction was 99.2% complete at the end of the year. The paste plant is expected to be finished in the second quarter. So the Fruta del Norte underground mine is expected to produce 300,000 ounces of gold annually for 15 years. You can read more about it on the northernminer.com. So Lundin Gold has taken that project and it's amazing sometimes what just fresh blood does and just new people, new relationships, and all of a sudden everything turns around. Yes, that's Lundin Gold, also in Ecuador. And we have another story regarding courts in Latin America. Chile's top court backs Barrack in Pasqualama Water Case, also by Cecilia Jamasmi, who's doing an awesome job on this whole ESG front. She's, I think she's covering it nicely. And I don't even know if she's trying to cover it specifically or if these are just the news stories and they're all turning into these ESG stories. So it's quite interesting. Chile's Supreme Court handed another small victory to Barrack Gold after rejecting an appeal by a local indigenous community asking for a revision of the water quality baseline in the area where the company's halted Pasqualama Gold Silver Project is located. Now, for those who aren't familiar with Pasqualama, it is on the border of Chile and Argentina, and it's a massive project that Barrick owns, but it's been riddled with environmental concern. And the fact that it's in two countries is problematic for it. I think they were talking about maybe they just do one side. And it's worth going to the website. Uh, you can see some of the images of Pasqualama. Put a search in it and you'll see a lot of beautiful images. And it's kind of like just this massive, you just see these mountains and it's just like probably a huge 
deposit of gold. Let's continue here. The ruling confirms previous official reports determining that the Estreco River's surface water quality had varied substantially in relation to what was originally projected in Pascualama's environmental qualification resolution due to natural phenomenon. La Tercera newspaper reported, while the decision discards the Diaguita Pate community allegations of pollution, it doesn't pave the way for Barrick to reopen the long-stalled project, which has been shuttered since 2013. At that time, a court ordered the gold giant to halt construction over environmental concerns. Barrick shelved the project, straddling the border with Argentina later that year, citing massive cost overruns and nosediving metal prices. One other little detail on this, Pasqualama is facing additional legal challenges. Barrick is still waiting for a decision on its request for an environmental court to reverse a permanent closure order from Chile's environmental regulators, SMA. The original mine plan for Pasqualama, which required a capital outlay in excess of $8 billion dollars, contemplated an open pit operation that would have had an effect on three small glaciers in the Chilean side of the Andes. It also involved major construction in the area and huge waste dumps. In 2016, Barrick began a, quote, drastic revision of the project and agreed to pay $140 million U.S. to resolve a U.S. class action lawsuit that accused it of distorting facts related to the controversial project. Shortly after, Barrick abandoned the idea of an open pit at the site, saying it plans to mine underground instead. And then finally, just to give you a sense of the scale, if it ever comes into production, Pasqualama would generate about 800,000 to 850,000 ounces of gold and 35 million ounces of silver per year in the first full five years of its 25-year mine life. So, Chile's top court backs Barrick in Pasqualama water case. So a miner wins this one. And we're not done with these environmental concern stories. We actually have a huge one out of Australia. Siemens to go ahead with Aussie coal mine contract despite pressure. So German engineering giant Siemens will honor a controversial contract to supply signaling systems to Adani's Carmichael coal mine in Australia despite being under fire for the project's alleged climate implications. And of course, Australia is suffering from all these massive wildfires. I mean, you just see, it seems like the story has been going on for weeks now. And the images and the reports are pretty heart-squeezing. I mean, the billion animals, I think, is such a huge number. You know, it's kind of a scary number when you start talking in terms of billions of casualties so they're talking about animals and that's quite the number the prime minister as far as i understand is not a huge environmentalist and so he i think he went on vacation during the fires so it's becoming this climate change thing in australia is really uh, coming to the fore as an issue whatever side you're on it's an issue so Siemens is honoring a contract to supply basically uh, signaling systems to Adani's Carmichael coal mine in Australia, despite criticisms from various activists. So we have a quote from Chief Executive Joe Kaiser, who's from Siemens. We have just finished our special meeting. We have evaluated all the options and have concluded that we must fulfill our contractual obligations. He also vowed that Siemens, which supports the Paris Climate Agreement to curb carbon emissions, would create a body to better, quote, 
manage in the future the questions of protecting the environment. So you see, Siemens, okay, like they are saying they are on board with the Paris Climate Agreement and they are actively concerned about protecting the environment or to answer those questions at the very minimum. The decision on the contract, reportedly worth 20 million euros or 22 million US, comes as Australia is dealing with an unprecedented fire crisis that has claimed at least 27 lives, destroyed more than 2,000 homes, burnt millions of hectares of unique habitat, and killed more than a billion animals. And we have a quote from the Environmental Lobby Group Australian Conservation Foundation. They said, Siemens announcement that it will continue working on a Danny's coal mine while bushfires rage in Australia is nothing short of shameful. The company has shown its true colors with this decision. It has a climate change policy, but it is hollow and empty. Kayser met last week with German activist Luisa Neubauer, offering the 23-year-old a seat on the supervisory board of Siemens Energy, which she turned down. Siemens Energy creates gas turbines and wind turbines, while the Adani contract will be supplied by Siemens Mobility, a different division. Kayser also said there were competitors to the railway signaling contract. So he says, quote, whether or not Siemens provides the signaling the project will still go ahead. So he kind of said, it's not going to make a difference if we do it or someone else does it. Yeah, I'm not sure that kind of reasoning is going to placate the critics. I don't know if anything will placate the critics, but saying it's going to happen anyway, I'm not sure that's really an ideal response. But let's continue. Enough editorializing. Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg weighed in. She said last week that Siemens had the, quote, the power to stop, delay, or at least interrupt the building of a huge Adani coal mine in Australia, and people should push the company, quote, to make the only right decision. So this is getting a lot of attention. I think it's really interesting, too. I mean, Greta Thunberg, last I heard, she was 16 years old. Here you have 23-year-old German activist who seems to be leading the charge against Siemens, Luisa Neubauer. Pretty interesting. And just a final point, it says here, that Australia is the world's biggest exporter of coal. Maybe that's why this project is also getting so much attention. You can read the whole thing on northernminer.com. That's Siemens to go ahead with Aussie coal mine contract, despite pressure. And also, there's a really interesting story I don't want us to miss. This was done by Trish Saywell, and it's Mavericks Metals Prove Skeptics Wrong. And this is like a 3,000-word article on how... Mavericks Metals, which came out of Pan American Silver, turned from sort of a small royalty and streaming company to one with more than 100 assets. So it's a very interesting story, kind of a great business case. If you're interested in streaming companies and royalty companies and just how that whole business model works, this article is for you. In the three and a half years since Jeff Burns co-founded Mavericks Metals with CEO Daniel O'Flaherty, in July 2016, the royalty and streaming company's portfolio has grown to more than 100 assets, 14 of them paying. In 2018, Mavericks posted net income of $3.5 million on record revenues of $34 million from 20,886 attributable gold equivalent ounces sold and is on track to meet its 2019 guidance of between 22,000 and 24,500 attributable 
gold equivalent ounces sold. And it says here its largest shareholders are Newmont, that owns 25.1%, Pan American Silver, which owns 23.1%, and Kinross Gold, which owns 9.4% of the company. So it's got some pretty big, important companies that are investing in Mavericks. And you just read a little bit of background here. Again, it's a massive article. The kind of thing that the Northern Miner really does best, which is this kind of in-depth on, you know, smaller royalty and streaming company. Where are you going to get this other than this website? So I'm just going to read a few paragraphs here. Burns was president and CEO of Pan American Silver from May 2004 until December 2015. And he's one of the co-founders of Mavericks Metals. After more than a decade at the company, he decided it was time to step down and let someone else take the reins for the next leg of growth. While the company was introducing Michael Steinman as his successor, Burns happened to be reviewing Pan American Silver's annual information form and realized that buried in the portfolio was a series of royalties for which the company was getting zero market recognition and zero value. So he went to the board and asked whether they thought it would be worthwhile to pull the royalties into a separate vehicle and allow them to bring them to the market. Company chairman Ross Beatty, a hugely successful serial entrepreneur and renowned mining operator and investor, thought about it for a minute, Burns recalls, and said he thought it was an excellent idea. They set it up. It took six to eight months to organize the portfolio, find a shell company to use, and identify candidates to participate on the board and management team. Pan American initially held a 60% stake in the company, and Mavericks completed a private placement before its launch on the TSX Venture Exchange and provided it with a modest treasury of $6 million. And it says here, right out of the gates, two of the 13 royalty streams Mavericks acquired from Pan American were cash flowing, contributing the modest sum of 1,500 gold equivalent ounces a year, enough to keep the lights on and the company going. Anyway, so it goes on here that uh, they got Fortuna Silver Mines was one of those streams. And then eventually they brought on Goldfields because it looks like a lot of companies have these almost orphaned royalty streams that maybe aren't worth that much. So they don't really get any recognition for it. And I think what Mavericks is doing, from what I gather from this article, is they're kind of compiling and putting all of these not so valuable or or you might even say assets with unrecognized value from all of these companies and putting it together and then creating a valuable company which is focused purely on streaming. So it's an interesting niche. They're not going for the huge royalties. They're sort of going for these mid-range to even smaller project or royalties so very interesting so they brought on goldfields uh, who had a similarly sized portfolio and they got a stream from silver corp which is on their silver tip mine in british columbia and this is now owned by queer mining it also acquired two royalties from oramet these are associated with alio gold it also got a royalty owned by rnc minerals it's got a two percent nsr on an endeavor mining's karma mine in burkina faso and Newmont was sitting on a portfolio of 50 royalties that had been created within the company since it had spun out of Franco, Nevada, a little more than a decade earlier. Quote, Newmont reached out to us because they had noted what Pan American and Goldfields had done and how their initial investments had increased substantially in value, Burns says. Quote, they decided they were going to do some sort of transaction to harvest value from their portfolio, and they thought we might be a logical partner to talk to. So a fascinating article really about the nature of the mining business and the whole financing royalty stream company business model which has been just incredibly successful for a lot of companies 
preeminently for Franco-Nevada. Yeah, I think the key to it, though, is they're not going for the large kills. They're sort of going for the mid-sized to smaller stuff that maybe don't move the needle enough for Franco-Nevada. Like, that's my general impression of their strategy. Go small. And you'll see it in this article. They talk about that. That's available on northernminer.com. And also, I just, I'm not going to go into the stories, but we have a couple of M&A stories. I mean, 2019 was such a huge year for M&A. And I want to point out and highlight that we have a couple of stories on that. Bank of America sees further consolidation in the gold sector. And M&A will continue in 2020, Dorsey and Whitney says. So there is a sense that this hot streak in M&A will continue. That is all available on northernminer.com. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. to metal prices, we'd like to thank once again our friends at Infomine.com who provide us with these prices and they are available if you simply put in metal prices and Infomine. It's the first link that will show up. And on January 14th, gold is at $1,544.89. That is $24 less than last week. Silver is at $17.79. That is... 43 cents lower than last week. Platinum is at $969.30, which is $2 lower than last week. Palladium is going parabolic. It's at $2,150.79. That's $108 higher than last week. You're getting $100 a week almost the last two weeks. So up $108 on January 10th, copper is at $2.79, which is three cents higher. Aluminum is unchanged at 80 cents. Lead is up a penny at 87 cents. Nickel is at $6.37. That is 14 cents higher. Tin is at $7.84 per pound, and that's 24 cents higher. Cobalt is slightly lower at $14.74 per pound. It's about $0.08 cents lower. And zinc is up $0.04 cents at $1.08. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Paulo Castellari. He is CEO of Atlantic Nickel and Appian Capital Brazil. And they have just sold their first nickel concentrate from their Santa Rita project in Brazil. Santa Rita is one of the largest open pit nickel sulfide mines in the world. It was placed on care and maintenance in 2015. Mirabella Nickel operated the mine for six years before it shut it down due to low nickel prices and high costs. Today, the asset is owned by private equity firm Appian Capital and their subsidiary Atlantic Nickel, which has refurbished and restarted the operation and produced 11,000 dry metric tons since blasting resumed in July 2019. The plant is expected to produce between 13,000 and 15,000 tons nickel equivalent before the end of 2020. The interview is coming right up. If you want to read more about this, uh, we have a story on it as well. Atlantic Nickel sells first nickel concentrate from Santa Rita in Brazil. That's on the website. Otherwise, enjoy the interview and we will see you on the other side. 
thanks Paolo for, for doing this and congratulations on, on the news on January the 6th that you've already started selling nickel concentrate. Do you want to just tell me how it's going so far? Thank you very much and thank you Trish for the interest. So I think perhaps just to, to recap a little bit, we had a, an original plan to refurbish, revamp, relook at the plant and of course at the mine operations so that we would restart operations sometime in Q1 in March, okay? That was the original plan. Since uh, August, September, we started having very good results, particularly from uh, the plant in terms of uh, accelerating certain pieces of work. We've rolled out a couple of more challenging targets for the team, pushing here and there, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about the pressure points in a minute, so that we started having very good results, continued accelerating the process. Basically, we put together an accelerated program to run in parallel with the original program, and that uh, resulted in uh, what you heard being that uh, we, we concluded the first, uh, first sale just before the end of the year with the first shipment now in the first, the, by mid-January. Uh, 5,000 tons already, 6,000 tons already at the port. That's concentrate. And uh, we'll continue to bring more tons so that by mid-January, a week or a week and a half from now, uh, we'll have the 10,000 tons of uh, concentrate that will be shipped to the port of Ilhéus. It is low volumes for now, but again, the results have been very good in terms of taking into account, you know, it's a ramp up. What we say here internally, Trish, is that, of course, it's not a ramp up from a greenfields. And of course, if it were, um, you would be talking about an 18 month program, not a six months program. But we had an original plan for six months ramping up to reach a nominal capacity, annualized that is. And we continue with that. It's just that we brought forward a couple of months through two, three months uh, so that we expect by June, July, be at nominal capacity. What exactly happened that you allowed you to, to accelerate it by those couple of months? It's a very good question. You know, there are, there are no miracles. The only thing that actually the team did differently from the original plan was uh, a more detailed uh, risk analysis, Trish. We rolled out in, in August, September, a couple of, I don't know if they're tricks, but, uh, you know, just practices that we have brought uh, from other places that the team and I have been basically mapping the pinch points, ma mapping the points that uh, we felt uh, were more relevant to the process, to the, to the whole value chain, and basically applied risk analysis in terms of being prepared for what could happen. You know that uh, when it comes to ramp up, you really you really don't know what's going to happen, right? You, you just keep testing the process and step by step, you, you know, you're applying more and more pressure to the system so that you understand where the system holds and where it doesn't. That's how it goes on, on ramp ups. But, you know, we also did, a, I think this is the other thing that the team did, which was extremely helpful. And this was before my time. People kept a close track of the original team, Trish, and uh, talking about coordinator level, right? So quite junior level at the plant, when the plant was put to mothball uh, mode, they kept contact with the, with the people, they kept uh, track of where the operators, the coordinators, the shift uh, bosses were allocated in the region. In the process of ramping up, in the process of the restart, simply call them back and people were very glad to come back. And that of course helped us a lot in terms of training, 
in terms of the whole safety conversation because people knew how we wanted to, to operate from the previous operation. So perhaps these two key things, you know, very strong risk analysis, understanding value chain in detail, understanding the limits of the system in detail. Very early days, we applied some statistical controls as well in terms of uh, control charts, these sort of things, but um, nothing really out of the uh, ordinary. It's just like plain, simple, very good, solid uh, operating practices. And can you remind our readers when it was put on care and maintenance? So in 2015, it was the last year that Atlantic Nickel produced concentrate. And, and sorry, why was that? Well, basically, there were two or three things that led uh, the management at the time to um, uh, put that in care and maintenance. One of the beauties of Atlantic Nickel is that a lot of investment was made in the infrastructure. We have more than a billion dollar invested in the plant infrastructure. I mean, this is it's, it's a world, world-class arrangement that we have over there. And that was done in a time that the nickel prices were very, very favorable. The whole operating strategy uh, that was uh, assumed, adopted by, by the management team then, was a, was a strategy of uh, high volume, moving a lot of material, dealing with big trucks. You know, there were triple sevens there, you know, the, the big mining trucks that all contributed to a quite heavy uh, cost structure. As you know, prices collapsed. And I'm talking about the days that prices were at $55,000 a ton, you know, $50,000 a ton. I mean, really, you know, peak, peak prices. Prices collapsed, as you know. And on the top of that, the operator, the company, right, Mirabella at the time, had uh, a couple of unfavorable commercial arrangements that really you know, contributed further to the decision of mothballing. But basically, with the decline, with nickel prices, taking into account the cost structure and the arrangements that Irabella had at the time, the operation just wasn't economic anymore. When you're talking about the arrangements Mirabella had at the time, are you talking about with, uh, can you be more specific? No, I can't, unfortunately, I can't. But it's basically, it's basically commercial terms that were very punitive to them. Okay, so you breathed new life into this asset. What's your plan for this year? For this year, the key thing now is to really work hard on the ramp up in a safe way. The next six months, it's going to be that. It's going to be focusing on ramping up operations to something around anything between 13 and 1600 tons of nickel equivalent per month as from July adding up to anything between uh, 13 and 15,000 tons of nickel equivalent by the end of the year, Trish. So uh, ramping up something around 50%. In the first quarter, we we plan to be between 40 and and 60% of uh, nominal capacity. Then we raise to anything between 50 and 70. Then we reach again anything between 70 and 90. And then towards Q4. Uh, we expect to be at uh, nominal capacity. So the first quarter, you want to be between 40 and 60% of nominal capacity. Then in the second quarter, between 50 and 70%. Third quarter, between 70% and 90%. Precisely. Okay. And obviously, to reach those numbers, we expect a couple of months to be slightly above, slightly below, of course, depending on the plans for grades and all that sort of stuff. But the plan is to finish the year between uh, uh, 13 and 15,000 tons of nickel. And obviously you're coming on stream at a, a really great time for, for nickel and nickel demand. 
The fundamentals look really great with the electric vehicle market, stainless steel production, and so forth. Yeah, and I think, as I'm sure you know, we are, you know, very privileged to to have the asset we have because there are not that many out there uh, that will produce the product that we produce. It, it it's an easy product. It's a product that, as you rightly said, statistically speaking, it will end up going in one way or another uh, to some stainless steel, but. Uh, but the real deal for this asset now and going forward will have to be uh, the batteries market because of the, the nature of the product, right? I think our, our neighbors dealing with the ferro-nickel uh, and even class one, I'm sure they're going to enjoy a good period going forward, but not as much as uh, producers like ourselves, or relatively speaking, of course, right? So can you give me a breakdown roughly of how much of your end product would be going into EV markets and, and stainless steel? Trish, it's very hard to say because uh, basically, necessarily, our product uh, will end up in the hands of smelters, okay? So, the end is difficult to understand Mm -hmm. whether they're going one direction or another. But again, I feel that given the numbers that we have now and what we expect the market to move over the, say, next two, three, five years, at the end, a good chunk of our material will end up in some form of stainless steel, you see what I mean? Because Mm. sell to the smelters, the smelters will then own, process the material, and then the material will follow the value chain. But as I said, like other producers, we have the ability and flexibility to to have the the, the right product that, indeed, I wouldn't be surprised in the short term, an end user, be it a a battery producer, be even a car producer, would be interested in being involved in an asset like ours. Now, Appian uh, owns the company, is that correct? Yes, 100%. 100%. Yes. How did that uh, relationship come about? We're very fortunate. We have a, a small management team based here in Brazil, Trish, uh, dealing with uh, two assets held by Appian. Appian holds other assets around the world. The two assets that are here in Brazil are managed by myself and a small team uh, that is based here in Belo Horizonte. We're talking about half a dozen people that look after these two assets. The thinking is, is very simple. We're doing everything we can to help the assets stand on their feet so that at the right time they can get to the end, to the valve, to the right owner, right? To take the asset forward. And uh, what we've done, it was really your first question actually, right? What the team has done in accelerating uh, the ramp up bringing new operating practices, understanding potential in terms of upside and uh, extending the life of the mine, extending reserves, resources. This is exactly what myself and many of us have been doing for the last 20 years. And this is what we can do to the asset. And then from that point onwards, uh, we have a strong team on the ground at the asset level uh, that will take the asset forward. Okay. And what's the end goal? Well, yeah, well, if I understand your question, I mean, the end goal is to bring this this operation, and when it comes to Atlantic, right, uh, to bring this uh, operation to capacity, to firm up the um, upside potential. I think you are aware that uh, we have delineated reserves that will be enough for some uh, nine years with the current open pit. And then uh, we are firming up, and uh, studies will be finalized towards uh, the end of Q1, studies will be firming up resources that will take the, the mine beyond these eight, nine years that I mentioned to you, mm-hmm. uh, very probably uh, with an underground exploitation. 
but also with good potential with satellite open pits as well. So the end goal is really in the very short term to bring this operation to nominal capacity, find whichever business improvement opportunities are there. Uh, we have a small team that looks at exactly that, just business opportunities improvement. Uh, so really just uh, sweating the assets to the maximum, uh, finding improvements in the different uh, nodes of the system. That's step one. Step two is to firm up the, the upside potential and continue to work on protecting our competitive uh, cost positioning, which I think you are aware uh, that we sit well uh, within the second quartile of uh, the cost curve. And being nickel, nickel is a very volatile market. I completely agree with you that uh, the prospects for the industry are probably better than never before, at least in my knowledge, but it's quite a volatile market, so we need to be protected always in terms of the cost. So your main offtake partner is Trafigura. We have also in, in the press release, we shared with everyone that we have agreed on an offtake and financing facility with Trafigura. That is an important milestone for us. Our strategy when it comes to supplying the product is it's, it's, it's simple, but very solid. We have targeted different markets we, uh, geographically in terms of geography. And we have also targeted different periods, right? So that mm -hmm. we have a portfolio that is flexible enough in terms of uh, different locations and different tenors of contracts, right? So the example with Trafigura is, Trafigura by nature is, is a trader. So we have the flexibility to move up and down volumes more than one would typically have with, say, an end user or a, or a smelter. In parallel, uh, we are working with smelters in Europe and smelters in Asia, so that we have a good split, as I said, both in Europe and, and in Asia, which are good markets to take our product. Okay, is there anything else that you wanted to, to mention with this restart? Perhaps just to take the opportunity that I don't know if all readers are aware. I mean, we are extremely well positioned, uh, Trish, with Atlantic Nickel for a couple of reasons. I think we shared uh, with you most of them. The one that we haven't shared, we talked about the deposit and the fact that uh, we have upside potential and that's the work that we're going to do over the next six to 12 months to firm up not only the reserves we have, but also the upside potential. We are very confident that this asset will have a life in excess of 20 years. So the deposit is not only good, but it's scalable. Uh, it is of the right product. We are fortunate to be in a very business-friendly, mining-friendly jurisdiction in Brazil. I always say, Trish, that uh, Brazil is not quite like China, of course. But there are different regions in Brazil where mining is seen very differently. The events that we saw back in November 15 and then uh, unfortunately in January this year uh, did not help at all the reputation, but also uh, the legislation in certain areas. But the state of Bahia, uh, which is the state that Santa Rita Mine is located, is very friendly. They are very keen to see Santa Rita back in operations. As a matter of fact, they have suffered and they saw the impact in the community and in the value chain when Santa Rita was put to mothball uh, mode. So the fact that uh, we are in a friendly jurisdiction, it's something that it's, it's very important and not often talked about. And the third one that, that we talked about is around the people and the team. I think Appian has managed to put together a very strong team at all levels. Uh, I mean, you start with the advisory team, 
then with the technical team sitting in London, very experienced team, uh, the people that are here in Brazil that have, you know, 15, 20 years experience on the ground in Brazil, and then finally at the asset level. So looking at the asset size, quality, scalability, then the location, the product and the people, I mean, we, we have a very good package. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank and you. Best of luck with the rest of your ramp up. Thank you very much indeed, and thanks again for the interest. Thanks, Paolo. And I hope you enjoyed that interview with Atlantic Nickel CEO Paolo Castellari. Next week, we're going to have the Mining Hall of Fame highlights. I'm going to dig into the audio this week. We're going to see what we find there, but I think there's going to be all sorts of great stuff there. So we may turn an episode or two dedicated to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. Let's see. Feel free to share this online. You can email it to your friends, or you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.